Hi, this is Kevin Lau, and you're listening to Talking Blues. So you went to Hong Kong recently? Yes, I did. How long has it been since you were there? Uh, I actually was born in Hong Kong, uh, and I moved here when I was seven with my parents. Um, Technically, I went back once when I was nine. I don't really count that because seven and nine are pretty close. So this was actually my first time going back to Hong Kong since since that age. Wow. Yeah. So things must be quite different. Yeah, they are. Um, and I was really prepped by family and friends uh, to, to, to expect how different it was. But you know, the thing is for me, when you're a kid, you... Your, your memories are so uh, deeply ingrained. And so when you go back, um, I felt an incredible feeling of nostalgia just because it's, it's like you're stepping into a different lifetime almost. Right. And there's this feeling that everything is actually really, really familiar. I mean, the stores are different. The buildings are, some of the buildings are different. But the, the essential things for a kid, like the geography of play, and, and the kind of tactile appearance of where things are, that is all the same. And so that's a very, very surreal experience to kind of go back and revisit that. Okay, so I used to live in Hong Kong, and I left when I was 12, I think, mm-hmm. somewhere around 12. So that was back in 1971, and the world has changed drastically. For sure. Since then. For sure, yeah. And so just the thought that the airport is now on Lantau Island as opposed to uh, in Kowloon, Yes. It just amazes me, and also the, the subway systems and all that. Oh, yeah, yeah. The MTR is amazing. And, and so which part of Hong Kong were you were you raised in? Was it Hong Kong? Uh, it was actually the Hong Kong part, yeah. Oh, okay. Sort of um, southwest, sort of uh, southern area of Hong Kong. Again, at, when I was younger, I didn't really know right. any of where anything was. <laughs> so it's kind of weird going back and being like, oh, that's that's actually the part of the island where I was born. And so I revisited the place that my parents uh, and I grew up, and I accidentally stumbled upon my primary school because it was really, really close to the hotel we were staying in. Wow. So, so that was, uh, you know, just the feeling of looking at a building and being like, I, I kind of know this place. What is it? <laughs> uh, I, I, I actually didn't think that it was my school because the name had changed. Right. So I thought it was just a different place that looked familiar. And, and then I found out, you know, uh, a few days later from my cousin that they changed names, but it was the same building. So, Wow, that must have been surreal. I've always wanted to go back. And, but when I look at pictures of Hong Kong, it looks so different to me, mm-hmm, as it mm-hmm. should. Yeah, <laughs> many, yeah. Many years yeah and you know, like my, my father, like we were in Aberdeen Plaza, which okay, is just yeah. a plaza, you know, a few minutes drive away from where we used to live. And, and my dad was like, I don't recognize any of this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I recognize every bit of it. <laughs> and of course, he's looking at the, the sort of surface layer of the actual companies and the stores and everything that have, you know, changed. Right. Uh, whereas I'm looking at the the intersection of the streets and, and just really banal stuff that you kind of lose perception uh, when you're an adult, right. but you kind of get in touch with when you're a kid. Yeah. So I, I saw all of that. What made your dad, I presume it was your dad's decision to move here, what made him move to Toronto? Uh, well, there were probably a lot of factors. I, I, I probably, I don't want to speak too much on, on, uh, uh, on his behalf, but, you know, the, the handover to China was probably oh, yeah, a yeah, big yeah. factor. Um, some job things as well. Uh, you know, he, um, we were in Hong Kong for a while. He was teaching at Hong Kong University. Um, and, uh, but I think there was just this sort of, 
he had a history in Canada already because he had studied in Edmonton and then uh, he actually met my mom in Toronto. So it's not like Toronto was this distant place that he wasn't familiar with. Um, in fact, they were they were in Canada for a while and then they went back to Hong Kong and had me. And then when I was seven years old, we went back. So, so as a seven-year-old, because I remember we moved a lot when I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, at seven, moving is probably not as traumatic as it would have been a little later but how did you feel about moving to a different country at that point i i actually liked it i you know i think my personality was fairly easygoing as a kid and so um changes didn't really affect me negatively too much um not to say that there were many many seismic changes but that was sort of the biggest one that would be a big um, one that yeah. was a big one and uh what what i do remember is that the, the culture change was very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't necessarily a culture shock, uh, although I do think that my when I was in Hong Kong, I was a very kind of mischievous, boisterous kind of kid and, and, and not necessarily like a, a great student. And when I came to Canada, my whole personality changed because suddenly um, like I got a lot quieter and more introverted. Um, but I, I didn't, I just saw it as a change. Uh, you know, Hong Kong was very, very busy. Yeah. I was, uh, I, I just had that experience of early primary school in Hong Kong being extremely just busy. And there was a lot of studying. <laughs> and then when I came here, um, it felt like I had two years of vacation, even though I was in grade three and grade four. Right. Especially because, the math, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. yeah. Like, all of that stuff is drilled into you so early. Yeah. Um, that it it was just like cruising for a couple of years and then you get used to it and and you know i remember that feeling <laughs> <laughs> then all of a sudden i hit that brick wall yeah exactly it, hit, <laughs> it comes did, a bit later you know. did did music was that part of your life in hong kong or did it start later well my parents actually bought me a piano when i was 5 okay. so it did start in hong kong um and I don't remember this, but they said that I played a lot with uh, musical toys as a child. Um, so I, I kind of had this instinctive knack for gravitating towards music. And, and so um, I began learning piano when I was in Hong Kong. But I really, I really continued my studies when I came to Toronto. Because I always wonder with classical musicians, which I would presume that you would classify yourself that, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you start so young, and I don't, I, I know that it's not always your parents' um, decision. Sometimes it's the kids who want to play that instrument at an early age. But I always wonder at what point um, it becomes a passion, as mm-hmm. opposed to something they just do as a kid. Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. Like, was there a point where playing piano became a passion of yours? Yeah. You know, my relationship with piano was was really um it was it was almost on the fence a little bit because i i enjoyed playing piano from the moment i started it wasn't that i i hated doing it right. and i know that many kids who are for example forced into playing piano because it seems like the right thing to cultivate right. uh you know they they kind of they have this resistance toward it from the very beginning and i never really had that but on the flip side of it, I, I don't know if I ever, if, if that sort of burning passion for it um, ever really happened with me with piano. Uh, not, not until I was, 
you know, way into my 20s at least. So I had this kind of very neutral relationship with it where I didn't mind practicing, but only for like an hour a day, maybe even less. (laughs) And, um, And that was sort of, so, so it was this very interesting balance. And I certainly, I enjoyed it enough to do it. Um, I probably enjoyed it above average, like more than other things. Right. Um, but it wasn't really until I started creating uh, that some of those instincts really kicked in and some of that passion really started to, to alight, I think. So when you say creating, I would presume composing. Is that mm-hmm. correct? And, yeah. and just and maybe you didn't consider composing back then. But at what point did you start writing and creating new music? Yeah, I think it happened very gradually because I would be practicing, you know, these standard pieces from the repertoire, your typical Mozart and Beethoven and and uh, and Liszt and so forth. And um, and then once my forty-five minutes was up. Um, Sometimes I'd go off and do something else. Sometimes I'd stay at the piano, but I'd, I'd kind of make up things. Um, and so it started very, very gradually from from almost an improvisatory... Uh, um, like I would start improvising these pieces of music that were mostly me trying to imitate things that I was already hearing. Um, I think the very first thing that I actually set to pencil and paper, I, I might have been around 11 or so. Wow. Um and, but I didn't really start, I, I, composing was weird for me because, uh, first of all, no one in my family was musical or, or, or had any kind of, yeah, there were no musicians in my family. Um, there were very few musicians among my friends too. So it was kind of this weird thing that I was doing <laughs> on my own. And, um, and, you know, piano was sort of esoteric enough, but then composing, like that was just, that was so outside of anybody's radar so I didn't really think anything of it it just was a natural byproduct of of my practicing so I would compose um, but it wasn't until maybe high school around the age of 15 or 16 where I started to do it a little bit more deliberately a little bit more consciously that's interesting so could I can I I think at one point when we spoke in the past you you said that you you weren't really into pop music but I don't know if I'm remembering that incorrectly was your music based based around classical music all the time or were you into other things yeah so I had I, I loved classical music as a kid um, I think my dad would play uh, records and I just absorbed that sound and and you know it probably contributed to the whole playing piano thing because I, I think my parents noticed that I would be kind of sitting in rapt attention listening to these you know to these classical pieces and um, so that was actually my my childhood music I really really fell in love with it uh, but around the age of 13, um, I started to, my musical tastes started to shift toward film music. And really? part of the reason for that was because I was, a, you know, I was always a big movie fan. Um, I loved going to the movies. And, um, and then the connection that I made in my, in my brain, I guess, was that I was hearing this orchestral music in the movies that had a kind of surface similarity to some of the classical music that I grew up with but it was more modern it was it was accompanying these movies that I was really enjoying and um it was just different and was, so was there yeah do you remember a movie you watched that that you recognized that connection yeah um it was Jurassic Park that was oh, that okay. was my big one um because I was a little bit on the I mean 
yeah, I was on the young side for that movie, so it, it kind of terrified me a little bit. But it was just in the sweet spot of being terrifying, but also being there. There was something so captivating about it, and mm. I think because Steven Spielberg had made not exactly a horror movie, but but you know that kind of Spielbergian hybrid where it's like right. there's a scary element to it, but there's also this element of awe and wonder, and and that all came out in the music. Because you don't really think of the music for Jurassic Park as being scary. You think of the big, lush melodies and themes. And so I remember I watched it. I watched it twice in theaters, and I couldn't stop humming the music. I just I was like obsessed with it. And and you know, teenage boys and dinosaurs too. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just somehow it was the perfect <laughs> um, cocktail of stimulus you know? so did you think while you were growing up and getting more into music in your teens did you think that you would become a piano player or did you think you would be, become a composer or did you think either actually actually neither okay um, again because the career aspect was so off my radar um, I, I didn't really think that I would be doing it later I was not also not a very future uh, imagining type person right. you know I was a, I was a very in the present, I think most kids are person, which which most kids are, and you're, you're right about that. And uh, but it, but to the point where the idea of having to limit my options for, for example, for going to university, um, was something that was just a just a touch sad, just a little bit uh, scary as well. Um, I was one of those kids that felt like I could stay in school forever, you know. Um, but when I was in high school, no, I was um, I was just loading up on my maths and my science courses and, and basically doing everything except music. In fact, I stopped doing music in high school in grade nine. And my high school music teacher was very, was a little surprised about that. And she said, you know, you really have a gift for this. Why, why would you do that? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure where it's going to lead. And, and so, um, and actually she's a person I've kept in touch with for a while because we've seen with, we've since reconnected. Right. Yeah. So what made you get back into music? So around the age of 15, 16, I, um, you know, I was playing piano at a, at a fairly high level, doing competitions and so forth. Um, but I was also very into creative writing. Okay. So I would kind of write these, I don't want to call them novels. They were, they were the size of novels but they were not the quality of... <laughs> it was sort of like um, just fiction, I guess, out of the imagination of a 15-year-old kid and, right. um, with aspirations of being a writer. Wow. So I, I wrote a lot of... of um, I wrote a lot at that age, and somehow at the end of one of these big, big books that I thought I'd written, um, I kind of started to realize that it wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I, I like writing and I, I consider myself like a pretty good writer. But I think writing fiction is one of those things that it, it's like writing music. There's you need a lot of different talents at the same time. Mm -hmm. And you can be a good writer and be a terrible fiction writer. Like it's uh, and there were there were, I was very hard on myself and I looked at my work and I said, this is just actually quite terrible. Um, but while I was doing that, I was like. I was still daydreaming and I was still imagining. I was like, oh, you know, what if, what if this were a movie? What if there, there was a screenplay and it got turned into a film? And what if, what if somebody had an opportunity to write music to it? What if that was me? 
And so I started to kind of, I don't, I don't really re recall the exact moment when it started, but I started to write music to my novel as though I was writing music to an imaginary movie. That's crazy. And uh, I remember my parents bought me this, um, this really, really like cheap primitive software called Noteworthy, which I don't think is, I think it's been gone for like 20 years. But it was like, uh, it was my first computer program that helped me notate uh, what I was thinking. Uh, it's sort of a very primitive sequencer as well. Uh, you know, now we're in the age of digital audio right. uh, with much more sophisticated equipment. But this was kind of like a hybrid notation program and a sequencer together. And I started to just, you know, write music in it and record it. And this was around the very, very late 90s. And the Internet was just starting to be a thing. Right. Um, and I remember there was a website called mp3.com, which has been long defunct, I think. Right. And this was before anybody knew what the, the model for, um, <laughs> for streaming or downloading music would be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, internet speeds were slow and everything. Um, but this was a site where actually amateur artists could get a membership and post their music. And then every download that you had on your music, you, could, you actually made some money off of. Um, and I remember in the early days of this website, I, I, I started uploading these songs. And I had one song that had the name of, uh, it was called Final Fantasy Tribute because I was, I was thinking about the, the video game series. Right. And it got a ton of hits. And I actually started to make about 20 bucks per day, which is a lot for a 16-year-old. <laughs> and I thought, oh, man, not only am I writing music, I can make money off of this. Um, and so it was just this weird confluence of like... Um, something that I was super passionate about, became super passionate about, um, plus had delusions of being able to actually sell a product through. Mm -hmm. um, and just a lot of dumb luck, really. And, and, and that began filling my world and, and um, eventually led to me choosing to uh, pursue music composition as a degree. So when you stopped playing piano in grade nine, did you stop cold turkey you didn't really touch the piano for a while i actually didn't stop playing piano but i did stop taking music courses oh, okay, in okay. high school so i i still i did my arct and everything and, oh, okay. and that actually uh went all the way up to about grade 12 but just within my school i didn't really do right, any okay. music um so i i was still playing piano at that time so when you decide that you would make this soundtrack for your book slash movie did that come easy to you the idea of creating this composition that would go along with your book? Yeah, I think that was a big part of it, was that it, it felt incredibly natural, as though I'd been doing it for a while. And I couldn't wait to get the next tune in. Right. So it was one of those things where, you know, I often talk about creativity with my students, for example, and, and sometimes you're just blocked at every stage. Um, but this was a time in my life... Um, where I felt like the faucet was on and on high speed. Like I couldn't compose fast enough. Um, and now whatever I was writing, I didn't know at the time, but it was, it was obviously very derivative because you're trying to piece together bits and bits of your imagination and your musical memory, which are often inspired very, very closely by other things. Right. right. Um, but, uh, you don't think about that. And so, it was a way for me to write a lot of music and try a lot of new things. 
Um, and then I would show it to people and people would be, I also, I also got sort of a positive reaction from people. I, I was not afraid to show my music to others in a way that I was really, really afraid to show my writing. Huh. Yeah. In, in fact, I didn't really tell many people about my writing. Like, I think I told my parents and like one other person or something, or I would, I would just kept it under lid, you know. What do you think it is about you that likes to create things, whether it be writing a book or writing a composition? Or what do you get out of it that, that attracts you to it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a deep question. I think, um, you know, a lot of it is under the surface. It's mm-hmm. probably very hard to articulate, and it's probably some essential ingredient of personality, um, and I think that's different for each person. But for me, I've always had this daydreaming kind of kind um, of persona where I remember one day when I was a kid, I could I just walked around. I, I don't even know what I was doing, but I just had stories in my head all day. And I remember I was following my parents and we were doing things, and I had no memory of what we were doing <laughs> other than what I was imagining in right. my head. And I just remember creating these sequences of story after story. Um, and music was... I always relate music to creative writing because they seem to stem from that same impulse. Yeah. The big difference was that with creative writing, you had a responsibility to language and, and the kind of connection that language makes to the real world in a sense. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I was, I was never very, very good at maximizing, uh, <laughs> logic, for example, <laughs> within, within a particular narrative, but in music, um, that part of it was absent because music is a little bit more abstract and a little bit more, it's both more abstract and more universal. Right. Right. So we're dealing with pitch and rhythm. Uh, they're not components of semantics. They can mean different things, but there's, there was sort of an emotional connection um, that, uh, and somehow that combination was exactly the right thing for me. So, you said that you, there was a point where you couldn't stop writing, or that you just there was just so much stuff coming out of you. But when there, when when you're going through this phase, were you happy with what you were creating? And and like if he said, oh, "I'm going to write a piece that's going to be about dinosaurs or whatever it is," were you able to execute that to your liking very easily? I think for the first year. Uh, maybe the first couple of years of writing in Noteworthy in this way, um, I was I was probably extremely happy with everything that I was doing um, to, to a degree that would be maybe a little bit unhealthy for a mature <laughs> artist. Um, I was just, I was very confident. I was very, I was overconfident perhaps. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it's weird too with music because sometimes you need a little bit of that that largeness of spirit, that feeling of I can do anything um, in order to actually do anything. So, so the, criti- the self-critique and, and a lot of the, um, the, the hallmarks of what I would consider to be kind of mature artistic work, that came a little bit later, I think. Um, once I was in a community of people who were also creators and, and once you actually start doing a more formalized education. But that was a point, you know, in my childhood where I wasn't, 
I had no formal education in composition. Right. right? But you must have had a feel for it. So yeah. I wonder if once you started going to university or going to school for composition, if certain things were taught to you that you just thought, well, that makes sense. That's how, what I have been thinking all this time. I mean, would that be correct to say that there was a certain instinction that you had or instinctiveness that you had about how to compose and evoke emotions from whatever you did back then that was, mm -hmm. you know, that was taught to you and you thought, yeah, I know that. Yeah, and, you know, teaching composition um, is, a, is a challenging, in the way that teaching any kind of creative discipline, whether it's, it's creative writing or whether it's art, it's, there, there, there are challenges associated with that because you're, often what you're doing is you're expanding the body of knowledge that the, that the student is, um, you know, that they, that they know. You're expanding their horizons. Um, but being able to actually teach the creative impulse is quite, it's quite difficult, I think. Right. Um, um, and so, you know, there are formal education in composition sort of did a few things for me. Um, there was one part of it that was sort of confirming things that I knew already, right. um, which is very, very important, actually. It's, it, it sounds uh, a little reductive when I say that, but the confirmation of things that you know but haven't been able to articulate is actually a, a huge confidence booster. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also um, a pathway to great insight. You right. know, it's like imagine you're kind of doing something uh, by habit and then someone explains the philosophy behind a certain thing that animates what you're doing and suddenly you're like, oh, that, I, I get it. Right. I really get it. That's a flash of um, creative insight, really. Um, and then there's another aspect of... of formal education, which is just about building a kind of vocabulary. And you do that by looking at what other people are doing. Um, and that then feeds into the sort of increasing of, of knowledge. And the increasing of your knowledge uh, from a historical standpoint, from a, from a te technical standpoint, because we're asked to often do things that, are, that I've never done before. Right. Um, those things can be really really helpful as well as also a little bit painful when you're doing it because you're you're starting to it's like building new muscles almost and oftentimes you can't differentiate between which muscles are useful and which ones are are not you know you don't know and, and that can cause a lot of um artistic confusion too right. so a lot of I, I feel like a lot of um students of creativity go through these minor or not so minor crises when they educate themselves or when they get an education and and that it's almost built in it's almost part of the the process oftentimes when i start a new project in editing i go through the self-loathing phase <laughs> where i just think it's horrible or mm. i'm not good enough or whatever yeah have you encountered that in your composition process yeah and again with I, th I think with maintaining your sanity in a creative environment, it's this weird balance between yeah. having enough confidence to actually put forth something, but just enough, just enough of an appreciate appreciation for how much you don't know so that you don't stop growing. Right. Because I think that the two extremes are, you know, if you're a person who is, is so confident that anything kind of bounces off of you um, and, new new things that come along are easy to dismiss um i think 
I think one runs into the problem of not being able to see your own work for what it is, and and that ha- that can have big consequences down the line. It can mean that you're not you're not growing, yeah. um, and you're not yeah you're not developing your your voice in a in a really meaningful way, and that can that can lead to all sorts of stagnation. Um, on the other hand, and probably more common is the self the self loathing aspect, which is that you're often confronted. Uh, particularly when you when you get exposed to a lot of music and you know because as a young person you think you know everything um, but if you really are open that's 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 the hard part it's like if you're if you're open to other experiences other methods of doing things and open to the possibility that someone or or many other people have figured out a way of doing things that I don't know how to do um that can actually be kind of crippling at first mm-hmm. because then you're like, oh, maybe, maybe this is really naive what I'm doing or maybe it's, you know, maybe everything I thought I knew was somehow not right. Or, um, so once in a while, I'll, I'll do get into these moments where, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, but again, it's a balance. And, yeah. uh, and, and I feel like I've, I've had a lot of time to kind of go through that balance and I also think myself. it's part for me. I also yeah. think that it's part of the process. Yeah, you know yeah. that if I didn't feel that self-loathing, maybe it's not good enough or something. I don't know. It's weird. Um, so you still play as a pianist, and you do concerts, and you also write. At what point did you decide that okay, I want to become a composer, or I want to pursue music as a career? Well, I the reason why I went into composition at the University of Toronto and why I took that leap to just, you know, put in my application for for music composition uh, was because I wanted to have my music played by a live orchestra. That okay. was the central animating impulse. Um, I didn't have any long term career goals, uh, but but that was sort of like the big step in front of me. Like, just because I was so used to these primitive sound fonts that I had on my computer and I was like oh it'd be so great to have an orchestra to write music with a live orchestra in mind so that was really everything I I did was for that reason but you're still playing as a musician yeah yeah and it's funny because in the first couple years of my undergrad I I kept up my piano uh, partly because you had to you actually have to um, do juries on your major instrument the specialization is actually quite late in um, so but I found that, um, yeah, it was around the time of stepping into university that, that I started to really push the creative side and then kind of pull back on the performing side. Um, I used to perform, like I used to play my own music and I used to perform the music of my colleagues and, and so forth when I was a younger, when I was younger. Um, and then I kind of gave that up for a long time because I found I wasn't a good enough pianist to really do it in a satisfying way. And it, I, and it was taking way, way, way more time um, and you know, it, even I'm a fast composer. Like I write music fairly quickly and and relatively fluidly. And even for me, it's you know it's a huge time commitment to write anything of substance. Um, but so, you're writing because of your knowledge of the piano. Yes, I mean the I mean I think piano was, I think piano was the foundation for which I built a lot of other structures on top of, right? So playing pieces on the piano taught me a lot, much of which I probably can't even explain. Um, 
but really it was it's it's listening to other music, uh, particularly listening to music uh, that is not on the piano actually, that really really trains your um, your creative instinct, and that's why I was always writing, wanting to write for orchestra, even though I didn't really play an orchestral instrument. I played trumpet in high school, but I don't really count that. So uh, when you okay, so let's say I say, can you write me a soundtrack to this film or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the process? What happens in your mind? Do, do you do you picture or imagine an orchestra? I, I know it's different because who knows what 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 the piece will be, but. Does the music come out in orchestral form, or is it in your head? Does it come out as if it was playing played by a piano? Like, how does what do you picture in your mind when once you start working on a piece? Uh, I would say definitely not. Uh, my imagination is definitely not constrained by the piano, so I very rarely actually think of the piano in terms of the first sound that I think of. Um, I always say that with different composers, there's a foundational. Um, thing that you gravitate towards as the first thing right. um, and then you have to kind of build those other uh, instincts around it in order to be more well-rounded and I think my foundational element is harmony uh, followed very very closely by melody and texture so you know I often think of like you were saying if you get a film what's the first thing that comes to mind? And it, it usually does have to do with the film because sometimes, I, as much as I love the orchestra, it's not necessarily the, the right medium for right. all sorts of stories. Um, but having said that, you know, if, if, it, if the orchestra is the appropriate medium, then right away I'm thinking about either themes, if it's, a, if it's the kind of film that's appropriate to have themes, uh, or sound, um, with harmony as kind of the, the, the foundation, you know, uh, governing all of those parameters. But do, like, notes come into your head? <laughs> like, is that the way it would work? Or, like, I know this is a silly question. No, no, I, not, I, not at all. I don't know what happens, like, you know, at that first moment when you sit down and say, I have to write a piece for this, or I'm going to write an orchestral piece. I don't know how it all starts. Right, right, right. Yeah, the creative process is very strange. I, I think there's a lot of the creative mind that is built on many, many, many years mm-hmm. of of sort of unconscious, unconscious mental muscles that are relying on memory. So, for example, um, if I'm thinking of a sound, because I've done this for a long time, I kind of know how that sound translates in terms of notes uh, and in terms of what instruments are creating that sound. So, so for example, if you set a scene for me, like, um, I don't know, something that's fantastic, that's set in space or something like right. that, um, whatever the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, maybe it's a, it's a, it's some kind of strange texture that's high register or something like that. I can then kind of decode that into its constituent elements. So whether that's the pitches that are involved, the instruments that are playing, the kind of tactile sensation that it's creating, and, and I kind of know how to notate that. So that it's for that reason why when it, whenever I create, I actually, as I've gotten older, I move away from the piano 
and I actually go to like a coffee shop or something and I'll bring paper, like staff paper with me. And I'll actually document, uh, attempt to document that imaginary idea into a combination of notes and also verbal notes, like written notes about what I'm thinking about. And, and so that just preserves a little bit of that idea. Notes are part of it, but it's not the whole thing. Okay, so how long after you went to U of T for composition did you have the opportunity to actually hear an orchestra play something you composed and, and making that dream come true? Fortunately, not too long, because I, there was um, the Hamilton Philharmonic Orchestra at the time had this young composers competition. And as young students, we were encouraged to apply to you know anything that sparked our interest. Or, um, and I, I applied for it, and I basically wrote a piece, and I sent it in, and... They had, um, there weren't a lot of submissions actually, uh, so that was helpful. <laughs> um, and then, but they had this final round, which was great because they had these three pieces that were played live in front of a small audience of, I, I think they were donors. Um, and so the pieces were read by the orchestra, which means that, that they're kind of, they're not, they haven't been practiced or rehearsed, they've just, they're just being sight read. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a jury there actually ranking the pieces and um and my piece ended up winning the jury selection and then also they had like an audience award as well so the prize for that piece was that the piece would be played in concert and then I would get a commission to write a second piece of music so that was really the the you know again contributing to a certain degree of unearned confidence on my part (laughs) just feeling as though I could I could just really do this. And well, apparently you could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, but I attribute those early years, especially um, sort of late high school and early university, to that tremendous amount of um, motivating spirit, which is which is actually what keeps you going during the years that aren't so easy. <laughs> okay, have there been not so easy years? Because you've been you've won a lot of awards, you've done some really cool things, and you've done a variety of things. Has there been difficult times? I think the times are are difficult. I think when you get into a mindset of, oh no, I I can't actually make any money to sustain myself this year. Um, that's when that's when things can tend to spiral. And you know, it's it's so weird because, so for a couple of years in university, I was on this high. Like I felt like I was getting work outside of university. Right. Um, and I was enjoying my courses. I was learning a lot. And um, so, did you know what kind of um, what it meant to be a composer and how you make a living when you went to university? Did you get a pretty good idea as to how that worked? Not entirely. <laughs> uh, and and I'm still learning, to be honest. I feel like it's been. I feel like when I'm sort of on my deathbed, I'll, I'll finally figure it out. But it's, it's just one of <laughs> if those... If you're lucky. Yeah, yeah, if I'm lucky. Um, there's a huge amount of ignorance on my part, actually, as to how things worked. And, and um, part of that was just pure ignorance, and part of it was, you know, not kind of wanting to know too much and right. just kind of pushing and pushing. So I, I didn't really know what it meant. All I really knew is that I, at some point, I felt like I was faced with two diverging paths, career paths. Um, and one was the path of, of, write, of continuing to write concert music for the stage, and, um, and one was film music, which was always the thing that I'd been 
really interested in when right. I was a kid. And, um, and they, I remember as the years went on, they, they started to kind of, uh, instead of being um, dreams, they started to take on a, a little bit of a, of a desperate quality as like I couldn't figure out how to do each one. And they both seemed to present their own share of burdens. So for example, on the concert music front, while I was writing a lot of music within the context of my program, and I had these occasional opportunities with like the Hamilton Philharmonic and then it, later on the Mississauga Symphony, for example, right. um, it seemed very, very... I started to realize how impossible it was to actually earn a living based on those commissions. You know, you'd have to you'd have to write like seven commissions a year in order to to live on that. So I can't, I can't imagine what kind of time frame goes into writing a piece, mm-hmm. and I, I I know that it differs. Yeah, yeah. But it's not something you whip out in a week, right? Like it, everything composition you do takes a lot of time. Yeah, and and on the concert music scene, uh, generally the the. The times are actually quite generous. Uh, occasionally, you know, especially when, uh, like, when I was younger, I would write things in a very, very short time. Um, but for example, when I was at the TSO, and this is skipping ahead yeah. quite a bit, but um, you know, I had one commission per year, and and that might be like a ten-minute piece. So you know, you had a year to write ten minutes worth of orchestra music. It's a very, very long time, actually. I, I um, imagine it is, but yeah. you're also writing for like an eighty-piece orchestra. That's so. true. That's true. But but um, you know, on when you look at the film side of things, um, it's very very different because in film music, um, often there are deadlines that are out of everybody's control, including the producers. Often, right, right. And so, um, something like that documentary that um, uh, well, I guess we'll talk about later, but a feature documentary with over an hour's worth of music um, and maybe a month and a bit to write all the music to it. So. So the timelines are really different depending yeah. on what the the nature of the project is. I, I kind of think of the commissioning world, the concert music world, as being like, you know, if you're commissioned to create a work of art or something for a gallery, like the the deadline is not as important as the as giving the artist time to kind of incubate what it is they want to say. Right. But for commercial medium, like film or, or even commercials, because a lot of people make their living doing commercial music um, or media music and like uh, video games and, and whatnot, you're kind of supplying a product to a client. And, and so, so the whole framework is different for something like that. So if it's a concert piece that you wrote, do you have the final say? Yeah. Yeah, so pretty much. it's pretty well. What I, I mean, want. unless you really drop the bomb <laughs> on something like, yeah, but, but that, Hopefully it isn't going to happen. But basically, it's your vision. This is you deliver it. It's not like the conductor is going to say, eh, I don't think so. you got to change this. I mean, there are stories of that happening. Uh, but but I, I fortunately have not come across too much of that. And um, neither have my colleagues. I think there was a time in the past where um, conductors cr- actually felt like they could exercise a bit of uh, creative creative decision-making and right. say, hey, you know what, I'm not sure. And, you know, once in a while that actually still happens for me and, I'm, and I don't mind it because, um, especially, especially if they're kind of enjoying the piece already, but I can tell that the aim is to make it better and not to, not to just be controlling. Right. So, so once in a while that does happen, but for the most part, uh, you have complete creative control and the only reason why something would fall through is if you're not meeting a deadline or if you're, you know, 
Yeah. Or if you're just completely bombing the project or something. Okay, so the other side of it would be film and commercials and yes. stuff. And I presume you don't have the final say in that. No. And and what's the discipline? I mean, how difficult is that to deal with? You're working on this piece thinking this is what it is. And then somebody saying, yeah, I'm not, you're not doing it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit of a range in film and it depends on who you're collaborating right. with. But um, it can it can range from... I think the most positive experience which I've had was the most recent one right. uh, with Charles Officer, where um, it is a collaboration. And uh, because Charles was happy with the initial vision that I was presenting musically, that kind that generosity kind of extended to most of the music. And so I felt like I had a lot of creative control. Um, but in, even in that situation, at the end of the day, it is his final call. Right. Um, but um, ideally, he hires you because he believes in you, and you know there's a reason why he hired you. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's just to bring your vision to it. Right, and and hence the range, though, because sometimes um, there are projects where that kind of that kind of synergy is is maybe not there. Right. Um, because you can be hired for any number of reasons. You could be hired because you're you sound like something. You've done something before that appeals to them, and um, and. Uh, Certainly, on the other end of the spectrum, there are projects where you're you're almost kind of like the hand of the of the composer, and the composer is the director or the the film creator. It's just that they're not the musician and they can't quite do right. what they they they're not responsible for the actual creative act, but they're responsible for pretty much every other facet of it, which is how I, exactly I want this to sound. And so I've I've been on projects where you know, you're literally tweaking every note in order to get the right thing. And if it feels wrong or if it feels off, you have to go and try to solve it. Right. And the director will give lots of instructions, some of them helpful, many of them vague and right. <laughs> confusing. And you have to play a little bit of a uh, psychologist and try to understand for your own sake what it is that is being asked of you and how you can deliver that in a way that will make them happy, in a way that won't kill you, like it's it's a it can be tricky, especially if there's a lot of volume of music involved. Um, I w I wonder if we go back to your dream of being your dream of having one of your pieces played by an orchestra. Tell me about that and and achieving that very quickly. But when you compose something for an orchestra, do you hear every part, every instrument? Like, does that come easy to you? Yeah, um, trying to explain that part of it has always stumped me <laughs> because I, I don't really, I think when you break it down as though it's a digital process of like hearing 10 lines at once or something, I don't think I do that. Um, I, don't, I don't think very many people do that. Okay. Uh, you know, the, there is a story of Glenn Gould being able to hear multiple voices. Like, uh, you know, there's, I think there was a story, maybe this was in a film actually, where he's in a cafe and he's hearing one conversation and then he's able to hear another conversation simultaneously. And that was um, drawing connection to the fact that he's able to play box music so well because he can have this simultaneous attention right. to voices. I don't have that. Um, and I don't think most people do. Um, but what it is is that the orchestra, even though it's made up of many, many individual components, they kind of clump together into these patterns 
that are then patterned into these larger components. And so what I'm hearing when I'm, when I'm trying to write for orchestra is I'm often hearing the kind of big picture um, patterning as though you're, it's, it's sort of like if you're a painter and you're seeing a particular splash of color, you're not necessarily thinking about how to engineer it. You just sort of see it. Right. right? Um, and then if you have the skill and the experience, you can, you kind of know, uh, there's a limited set of things that will go into creating that kind of color. Um, so that's part of it. Um, it's, it's hard to describe, but like a lot of, shall we say a slightly more conventional orchestral music that, that, um, for example, when you listen to a film, a Hollywood film score, there are certain kinds of conventions to the ways that instruments are used that if you really master those conventions, it's, it's just basically like juggling about two or three things. Um, so if you really know your strings well, if you know your brass well, um, strings tend to play the most and you can kind of orchestrate in a, in a really, in, in a, in a very standard kind of way. Um, and there's a, there's a craft to that and you learn that, but once you learn it, it's not that difficult and brass can, you know, accentuate or punctuate, um, and woodwinds can double and, and so on and have these solos. That's kind of like a very, very, um, basic foundation of knowledge. And then what you do as an artist is you try to, you work with those kinds of conventions and then you kind of try to um, up, upheave them or at some points or because of course you're trying to draw your own unique sound right. uh, from the orchestra and sometimes you need to try something that's a little bit out of the ordinary but you're building upon structures that are already there and you, that's how I kind of do it I think. So if there was a solo um, do you know what instrument immediately or do you play around and say well, let's put let's dip get the violin to do this or the cello to do this like how does that happen um that often sometimes happens in the actual writing of it you know i so for example in a concert piece of music let's say i'm writing a piece from nothing it's just a 10 minute piece of right. of orchestral music um uh, and sorry do they ask you write me a 10 minute piece is that the way we work or like what how how do they commission something for you yeah the the, the really only the the constraints tend to be duration and the exact instrumentation of the group you're writing for right. um, and then occasionally maybe you know if it's if it's on a particular program with a theme um, they might tell that to you and say okay well you can you can go against the theme or you can go with it depending on what you want to do right. but those are the the those are basically the only constraints usually once in a while they might have a suggestion like a thematic suggestion but very often they'll leave you to to like the toronto symphony never told me what to write um i always got to just write whatever i felt like it and, wow. um but yeah when you're so when you're creating a piece of that there's a lot of moving pieces and i often try to think of the big picture and and what the what the fundamental theme of the piece is about uh as a kind of the biggest picture possible you know it's almost like when you're creating a story what is the story and what is the blueprint of right. the piece um and then i'll do the other thing where i'll go into the opposite extreme and i'll zoom in i'll, I'll try to find out what is the the absolute most essential musical ingredient that is 
defining the personality of this piece. So that could be something like a theme, but it could also be a rhythmic idea or a textural idea or a, a little motive. Um, and then from there on, I'll kind of take the biggest picture and the smallest detail, and I'll, I'll start to kind of construct uh, like a big blueprint around it. Um, and I do, the, I do all of this before writing a single note. Now, there are other composers that have very, very different approaches. Um, uh, often, I'm, I'm actually much less of an organic kind of... I, I really like the planning part of it. Right. Um, there are people who don't plan at all. They just sort of <laughs> dive right in. But I, I find I, I, don't, um, I don't do my best work when I kind of do that. So I when can. you do the planning, not that it's, it's cast in stone, but yeah. do you have a pretty good idea where it's going to go as soon as you start writing, after the planning has been done? Yeah, it's weird. And because like my comfort zone is actually the planning, but then I don't mind if it's not cast in stone at all. So w when I actually start to write, when I actually sit at my chair and I open up my file with a blank page and I start to write... Um, there are plenty of times when it com completely goes off script. And, you know, it's sort of like that's the sentence to sentence, paragraph to paragraph right. writing. Um, and those are the moments where you make the decisions about the oboe or the cello. Like, I often don't think about that stuff unless it's really part of the personality of the piece. I don't really think about it until I'm kind of in the zone. And then when I'm in the zone, then it's just instinct. So I have this kind of very rationalistic planning process. But then when I'm in the zone or, or when I'm, you know, writing note by note, I kind of try to let my my older brain take over. So the, the, the parts of the brain that are a little bit more automatic, I guess, um, and relying on things that are, you know, that that are maybe less conscious, less on the surface. And that kind of dance between those two processes is something that I, I actually quite enjoy. Um, and because I enjoy it, I build it into my process. Right. But when you're writing these notes, are you playing the notes or are all the notes coming out of your head? Sometimes I, 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 I used to play them on the piano. Um, now I tend to avoid the piano altogether and I just go straight into the sequencer. Now, we have um, playback, of course. Right. So what happens is that invariably, once you've written you know, a good chunk of music, press play, and then you kind of hear the, the, the playback. And but until you do that, it's yeah. all in your head. You're just writing down notes. It's all in the head or it's all on the page somewhere. That's just a concept that's beyond me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is fascinating. Now, we talked about the fact that you've written music for film um, and and you have written music for orchestra the other thing you did was to write music for the uh, ballet and mm -hmm. I don't even know how that happens and you've done this more than once but they came to you and said we want we're doing a, a version of the little prince yeah can you write something so what happens then because does he like I I don't even know how that is it just you write a piece and they create a dance around it? Or do they say, to do this dance, we need a piece like this? Yeah. Um, and I only have worked so far with one choreographer right. on two different ballets. And so I think, uh, and, and that was uh, Guillaume Cote, who is the, um, one of the principal dancers at the National Ballet. Uh, and so I think other choreographers will have their own approach, but... Our approach for The Little Prince was basically we 
you know, he was creating this ballet from scratch as well. Uh, and so I was there at the very, very beginning when we were trying to figure out not only the musical uh, personality for the ballet, but just the whole personality of the ballet in general. What, how much do you know about ballet? Well, before I got to do this, not a whole lot. Um, I learned a lot w- when I was asked to do it. And, and you know, I remember actually um, going to the ballet a lot and asking for comp tickets and, and, and watching a lot uh, of DVDs. And, and even then, you know, there's so much in the actual rigor of the, t- the technical rigor that goes into dancing and choreography that, that I only have a kind of observer's right. um, vantage point. But, um, yeah, but in terms of writing the music for this, I mean, there, it was a very, very multi-step process. Um, again, the first stage was just discussing the story because this was a narrative ballet and, and we had to keep the story of the Little Prince in the front of our minds at all times. And we talked about what it meant, what we wanted to say with it in terms of the vision of the ballet. Um, so everything to do with the story and how it looked as well, because um, there's a design component to the sets and the staging and the costumes and all that. So that all fed in, into my ideas about the music. And, and then what we did was we, ex- we did something I'd never really done before, which was we did a series of workshops where we experimented with different kinds of music um, just to kind of throw a little bit of paint on the page and see what would, what would stick. Um, so that, it was actually a bit more of a, an organic starting process. Um, but at this point, they don't have the dance sequences or what, what, whatever one calls it figured yeah. out. No, because, uh, and, and also Guillaume's way of choreographing was um, very, very fluid and very organic and, and extremely subject to modification. So, you know, we, he might actually spend a week on a series of steps for a particular scene. And then a couple months later, when we were working on something else, that, that those steps are gone. It would just be discarded because it's just a way of trying to, we were really taking the long painstaking approach to find the heart of the, the piece. Um, a very, very luxurious approach in some ways because of the time involved mm-hmm. and the amount of time you could spend just just kind of thinking of alternatives and thinking of, you know. And so in our workshops, we had basically two years of like um, of, of the summer workshops. Um, we discuss some of the parts of the ballet that we wanted to try. And then I would write music to it again, just kind of on a whim. Um, and here I actually had a piano, so because I brought my computer to the, the ballet, I actually was given an office there, and I'd write music on it, print it out, give it to the rehearsal pianist, and they had dancers down there that were working on something else, and they had literally just, a few hours after I'd written the cue, they'd, they'd play the cue on the piano, and then he would just start to choreograph something. Wow. Without a plan, really. Or, or, although I think he had a lot of... Uh, again, sketches and ideas and things like that. And we just look at it and see how it felt. And, um, and from this very, very long painstaking process, we kind of started to build uh, a general sense of what we wanted to do. Was that it was easy to do that? Did you, I, you said it's painstaking, but I mean, it sounds painstaking. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously a completely different discipline yeah. or way of working. Yeah. Did you find the experience a very positive one? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, um, I wouldn't say it was easy. Uh, it was definitely positive. Um, but you know, it, it's, um, 
it's the kind of experience where you want to do not too often all the time. <laughs> well, because I it's, but I, I would <laughs> think that the ideal thing would be give us a 15-minute piece for the TSO and then you do whatever you want. You have all yeah. the freedom. Yeah. And then when you when it comes down to, well, we're doing a documentary and here's 15 scenes I want you to put music to versus, and that's constantly being re-edited versus let's yeah. start a ballet and we'll start from scratch. I mean, those are three very different disciplines. Right? Yeah, and I'm, I'm a, a sort of a bit of an impatient creator because I, I, I've said this before, but I often think that um, if there are problems with, my music or the way that I've conceived and I usually like to solve those problems in the next piece that I create right. um, and kind of grow in that way uh, but then kind of leave the piece alone whereas um, I think in the ballet world particularly because there are sort of it takes a lot to create a ballet uh, and then it's sort of there for for good there's a lot more effort into making sure that it's you know really really tweaking it and that extends to after the premiere as well, um, which is why the, these massive productions are always being modified. They're, you know, wh when something is performed, even that's not the final word on how it should go. Right. You're, you're, and and Guillaume was uh, a student of this process, and he really believed in trying to make it as best as you could make it. You know, and and if that meant scrapping something uh, six months later that didn't work. Um, then you scrap it, and and I really admire that um, that part of that process. Because it's a it's a in a way it's a bit of a perfectionist uh, way of looking at things. Um, and for me, I th the reason why I don't do that with my own music, ballet accepted, um, is because I feel like I'm not an amazing reviser. So when I go back into my to my older works, the few times that I have kind of made changes, um, I'm not always convinced that those changes make the piece better because there's a little bit of a domino effect that happens with, mm -hmm. with modifying and um, where, you know, you're addressing a problem that you see and you fix it, but by fixing it, you Create are new creating problems. a ripple effect and yeah. with music because it's, it's something that happens in time. Even the creator doesn't necessarily know what the effect of a change can be to, to that time. And sometimes accidentally you can do something that's really amazing. And I just don't have that. Um, that that's why I often tell people I'm a very instinct-driven uh, composer because once, once it's set and once I kind of do it and it feels right, I kind of trust that. Um, yeah. But also, I mean, the other thing we haven't really talked about is I presume during these times there are oftentimes when you're working on more than one thing, right? Yeah. So yeah. that you're, you're working on ballet, but you need to get paid, so you have to work on another piece or maybe two other pieces. Mm -hmm. Is it easy to go to isolate the different projects? No, I really hate it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, How I, many things are you working on now? Uh, right at this moment. All of my deadlines are quite far now, so they're... So most of them are not till about September, October. Um, that's really when things start to come to a head. So, but you're um, working on multiple projects. Yeah, but I can't. I can't really. 
with the exception of The Little Prince, which really, really was an exception because it was such a large project, right. dur- duration-wise and process-wise. But with, with, the, with that exception, if I have four projects that are all due in September, I have to, I have to look at my calendar and devote um, specific chunks of time to each one and finish one before starting the other. So I can't really... I have a huge uh, difficulty actually stopping one project and then starting something else and then returning to it. I kind of have to be in that space for a long time. So one of those projects uh, will be done by April because it's the only way I can get to the other, to the next one. So once in a while I'll get um, the recipient of the commission will say, Hey, you're really, really on time slash early. Like we never see this. And I'm like, well, it's because I'm, I'm going to be really not on time for something else if I don't do that. So it's just, I, that's how I have to kind of organize my time. Did you, so you, you said you didn't know that this is what would happen when you became a composer. But basically, most things that you do, you get paid for as a commission, correct? Like somebody say, calls you up and says, I need a ballet or I need, I need you to work on my mm-hmm. film or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there any yeah. other way or advert, like I do, you don't solicit work. They always come to you. I, I do. And, uh, when I do, <laughs> sometimes it's so weird with my career too because um, I often get asked to do things that I never seek out, and then the things that I do seek out, um, I often don't get. So it's it's like um, uh, that's that's exaggerating a little bit. There there are times when I've when I've been like I really 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 want to do X, you know. And but what does that mean that you would go to a director of a film and say I I love the project you're working on. Love to be involved in it. Or? Yeah, and I've I've done that before. Okay. There, there was one instance uh, about five years ago where I saw um, I, I met with a director of a short film, and I I actually wrote to him. And I said I would love to have a chance to demo for your film, which is basically saying that can I write something, and if you like it, can you hire me? And if not, that's fine. That's, right, but right. but can I give be given the chance to do that? And so you know sometimes you have to do that, and and if you're really if you really want to work with somebody or if, if, and you're not on their radar at all, it's sometimes the bold thing to do is to just kind of do that. Um, and then there are times when I've done that and nothing pans out. And then, um, and then of course I've been very, very lucky to be asked to do things that I never would have sought out, but then I'm really, really happy that they sought me out. So I didn't know about Charles's documentary, for example, until he he sought you out because of the work that you did with the ballet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, but I think, you know, there has to be a bit of a balance um, between just receiving work uh, and being a little bit proactive, uh, particularly if there are things that you want to do artistically, um, right. because I think that keeps things healthy. And, um, and also, you can, you can have great success in starting something that you're passionate about on your own terms. And um, that was a lesson I learned when I was a student um, because I worked with a friend of mine. We actually formed an orchestra when we were students, um, mostly because I had, an, I had a commission fall through and I was really frustrated about it. And I thought, oh, we should just, we should just make an orchestra and have this piece happen because if, you know, I don't know. But that's okay. But you were a student then. Yeah. Just getting together an orchestra is not an easy thing to do. Yeah, it was actually <laughs> impossible. Um, and then, and then my friend was like, "Well, I really, really want to conduct an orchestra. I've never had 
I can't seem to get the chance to do it. So we were like, let's do it. And, you know, again, it's one of those things where you don't, you almost don't think about how hard it is. Right. You just set out to try to do it and to not really, uh, to just have that kind of concrete aim of, of doing it. And that sort of push um, is what allows a lot of people to get the projects that they want done. Now, it's very hard to sustain something like that. And so there's a difference between starting an orchestra and having one big concert uh, and then running the orchestra right. for a long time. You know, and, and an orchestra is like, I mean, there were something like 55 to 60 people in that group at, at its heyday. I don't, I don't even know how we managed. I, <laughs> when I think about it, all I can think about is the impossibility of it and how I would never be able to do something like that again. But when you're at a certain time and place, it's just the thing that has to happen. And so, so we actually kept it going for about seven years. Really? Yeah. Wow. yeah. Uh, neither of us are, are you know, natural administrators, but I, I kind of saw it as um, this is a way of both doing the project that I want, but also getting completely out of my comfort zone and, you know, going into fundraising, trying to find the funds to support this group and um, emceeing the concerts, which is not something that I was really relishing doing before I did it. And right. then, um, and just having that experience on all fronts, you know, to, to just be a more well-rounded artist and to know what it takes to do something like that. So we go back again to that mm -hmm. first time you heard your piece on the orchestra. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Oh, it was it was breathtaking. Like I thought it was, yeah, still remains one of the the really fondest memories of uh, of my experience. And it was like I need to do more of this. Yeah, it was everything that I hoped for. It was like it was like taking drugs without the side effects. You know, like <laughs> I was just on a high, and um, it made me want to continue. It made me want to keep going, um, but. Yeah, it was just the most positive thing. So what, you talked about the process and loving the planning portion of it. Is that your favorite part? Is there anything else? Is it sitting and watching the orchestra or watching the film, the final cut or whatever? What's your favorite thing that you do? Yeah, I mean, the the whole process of writing a piece for, for the stage um, has so many wonderful moments through that whole journey, um, it's it's really, you know, if only it paid a little bit better, it would actually be the best thing <laughs> in the world um, because th th it's just so satisfying. Um, I, I would say that, yes, obviously um, a huge part of the satisfaction comes from the, the moment where, you know, the orchestra starts playing and you get to hear it for the first time. Um, and then the feeling of a piece that you're proud of being shared with with an audience, you know, that's always very gratifying. Um, so, so those are great moments. The, the problem is that it can't really be all about those moments because the, proportionally they take a, a very, very small portion of the actual process. Right? right. So when you're composing a piece, you might be working on it for six to nine months or something. And it, there's one rehearsal on a concert. And so if you're living for those moments alone, then it's not, it's not enough. Right. Uh, and they are positive moments. But, you know, once in a while, too, like they can be they're actually can be quite stressful, especially if the rehearsals are not 
there's not a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. You know, time is always tight with orchestra rehearsal schedules. So you have, you sink in a lot of time to write a piece and then you get that kind of like 20 minutes of, of, of a high, hopefully. Um, but you know, they might not play it well, or, um, it might not be a very good piece in which case you might feel self-conscious. So there are things that can make that experience a bit stressful as well. Uh, for me, I would, I would actually say that my favorite part of the process is when I'm in the writing of it and it seems to be going well. And is that like a nine to five thing or do you just go until you're exhausted? Like when you're in the, the thick of it and you're writing down the notes and stuff, is it something that that's a discipline that you have a certain time that you allot or do you just go until you drop? <laughs> uh, it's become probably a bit more disciplined as I've gotten older, uh, but it used to be, you know, if I was on a project, I just write for the whole day, um, or or perhaps the whole night, you know. Yeah. Um, but I don't do that anymore because, you know, I have a wife and and <laughs> and <laughs> there there is a certain kind of um, uh, uh, merit that comes from having a, a slightly more disciplined sleep schedule. Right. Uh, I, I discovered one of the things for me is that I just need to sleep very regularly or else I won't actually be that productive. Right. Um, so I, in, in very, very sort of, if I have a project that's due in three weeks, for example, um, then yes, my whole day will be mostly devoted to working on that. But I'll, I'll quit usually at around 11 um, and and then just go to bed. And I'll start a bit later, too. Like, I usually don't start in the morning. Um, if it's the final week and, and there's a lot to be done, then it starts to get stretched at the seams a little bit. So yeah. the morning gets taken up, the night gets taken up. But but I usually try to reserve actual nighttime for just going to bed and sleeping. And do you know when it's done? Is it easy to know when the piece is complete? Yeah, yeah, for me it is. Yeah? Yeah. Um, for me, it's a great it's a great feeling of hitting that double bar line. Um, usually, you know, I'll make a few notes about things that I'll go back to and and just tidy up a little bit. But um, for me, about you know, when I'm sixty percent of the way through the piece, I feel like it's writing itself. Nah. So uh, a lot of the effort is in the really early stages when you're not sure what kind of piece it's going to be, what piece you want to write versus the piece that's coming out. Um, there's a lot of that going on. Um, but around the, the 60% mark, uh, it starts, to, you kind of know what it is. And, um, and usually that's a good feeling. And I kind of, it's a feeling of, you know, it's kind of like when you're playing a YouTube video and uh, you have really good internet connection and you can see <laughs> the rest of the video has been streamed already and it's just a matter of kind of walking through it. <laughs> so I've never heard it put that way. That's interesting. You yeah. still play, you still perform every so often. A little bit, yeah. And yeah. and how do you feel about that side of your career? Where it, like when do you do it and when do you enjoy playing your piano in front of people? Yeah, I... I didn't really perform at all um, until about last year, actually. So I was 100% composer in all respects. And, uh, and then last year, I had a, f a few odd opportunities to kind of play a bit of music, uh, my own music, but then also some other repertoire. And um, yeah, you know, it just exercises a different part of the brain and the body, I think, because when you're interpreting... Um, the responsibility shifts and it can be very, very 
therapeutic to shift that responsibility into from from creation into interpretation once in a while. Right. So where I'm feeling like you know, when I'm playing this piece, I don't have to worry about the piece. I just have to worry about playing it well. And so there's this kind of like I don't know how to describe it, but it's like a, a it's just like um, a physical almost release uh, where you're just exercising a part that you don't get to exercise that much. Um, it's still creative because you're still making some decisions about how to do things. Um, but I really, I really like the contrast. The only problem for me is that, as I said, I'm a, I'm a very slow learner at, when it comes to piano. So if you put it, a piece in front of me that has a lot of notes, it's going to take me a long time to learn it. And so I find the effort for me in performing something well um, far exceeds the, the effort in writing music. Uh, and that's partly just the fact that I've written music a lot and yeah. I don't perform a lot. Um, but it's also partly just, you know, I remember last year I, I did a concert where I played um, a piece of mine and then I played the Bartok Contrasts, which is a, a pretty hairy piece for, for piano and violin and uh, clarinet. And, and we performed in Houston and I spent like five months preparing for that concert. Like it was way more stressful than any of the actual <laughs> composing projects that I was doing. Um, so, so it was a lot of fun and I'm not sure I can sustain it. But other than, I mean, I don't even know if you just sit down and play piano for the sake of playing piano anymore. Do you do that? Yeah. Once in a while I'll get into kind of um, just a bit of improving on my own. Um, and you know, a lot of that is just to, to clear the pipes a little bit, um, and to just, uh, and you know, I'll pick up other pieces of music and learn them. And it's just to get out of my own head. I, I really, I feel like digging into other people's pieces, learning them, um, and playing them is the best way of inhabiting another artist's perspective. And I find that really, really refreshing. You know, once if you've written too much for a long time, sometimes you feel like you only know your own little ticks and, right. and how you would make this harmonic progression go or how you'd write this little melody. And, and then if you play other people's music, you realize that there's just so many ways of doing something and so many beautiful ways of doing things. So I, I do that for that reason. Uh, I don't necessarily perform that stuff in public. It's just, you know, I'll take out a Brahms piece or a, uh, um, I'm looking right now at um, Ligeti, uh, who's extremely, I mean, I can't really play it, <laughs> but it's really fun to work through some of this stuff right. and just see how a different mind works. Do you have goals? Do you set goals for yourself? Yeah. Is yeah. there anything you can share? Like, you know, in the same way that one day you wanted to have an orchestra play a piece, is there such a goal that still exists for you? Yes, I think so. Um, I think goals emerge during moments where you're just sort of dissatisfied with something, and um, which is why I, I tend to think that a little bit of dissatisfaction is um, is actually fundamental. Mm -hmm. It's really important to not be happy all the time. <laughs> I mean, you can't be like it's yeah, yeah. it's built into human nature to want something and. Um, the difference between a healthy set of goals and an unhealthy set of ones is, is uh, you know, you get to choose the problems that you're having, right? You get to choose right. what is making you dissatisfied. So, so for me, it's like, yes, I'm very, very happy with 
the the structure of how I'm how my career is going. Um, but there are some projects that I haven't done that I would like to do, and um, there are some orchestras that I haven't worked with that I would love to work with. And so, for example, in film music, um, I would love to do a bit more of that, uh, just because I keep talking about it. Like I talk about it in my lectures. I talk about it with friends. It's clearly a part of me that is I'm very very passionate about. Um, but I actually don't do a lot of it in my daily life, and so one of my goals is to do a bit more of it. And um, yeah, and then on the concert music side, there's always there are always certain projects and certain musicians that you want to work with that you know I'm not quite at the level yet and and I would love to try to make some of those things happen so so when you say you're not quite at that level yet how do you get to that level is it just working with more people and getting your work done more getting more of your work out there I think so and um and just just finding you know because so much of my concert career is built on musicians championing your work um that's actually how any of us really get ahead is that performers are willing to play your music, whether they're solo, incredible solo artists um, or chamber groups uh, like a certain quartet or a certain trio or, right. or orchestras. And so I remember in around 2003, this was after I worked with the Hamilton Phil on those two pieces, um, I went to a, a reading session that the Toronto Symphony was hosting which is you know they sometimes the orchestras will solicit uh, uh, co- like a competition for young composers and people will send in their scores and then they'll pick a couple of them right. and read them uh, and that's a very good networking opportunity and it's a very good professional opportunity so I remember attending one of these sessions and I'd submitted a score and it, it didn't it didn't get into the reading um, but I went to the the, the reading and I remember thinking to myself, like, my goal, like, I really, really, really want to work with the Toronto Symphony. That's just something that I just would love to do. Right. Um, Which you have done. Yeah, uh, about nine years later yeah. after that, yeah. So, um, so now I'm in one of those moments where I kind of think, oh, you know what, I would really love to work with, uh, you know, an American orchestra, for example. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then, and then just if you kind of really, really aim for that and, and believe it and uh, very, very passionate. I feel like that's kind of a good, it's a good start. It doesn't mean that it'll happen, but um, it sort of sets your, sets mm-hmm. your bearings a little bit. Um, and then, yeah. Any projects you can talk about that's upcoming? Anything you're excited yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. So um, actually speaking of American Orchestra, um, because I was working with this group in Houston last year as the River Oaks Chamber Orchestra, I was working with uh, two of the musicians in that orchestra. So they've commissioned me to write a piece for orchestra in Erhu, wow. the Chinese instrument. And um, so that's the, I think that's the most long-term project that I have that's due at kind of early next year. Or maybe it's December. I don't know. I'll have to check. <laughs> uh, so that's that's one that I'm really looking forward to. Um, I'm also wrapping up an opera with Against the Grain Theatre, oh. which is um, a sort of indie opera company based yeah. in Toronto. Uh, very, very amazing company with a lot of just really progressive ideas and ideals. 
and um, I'm the first composer that they've commissioned to do sort of a new opera with. So uh, we've had a couple of years to actually workshop that process, and actually most of the music has been written for it, uh, and it was performed last year as a kind of work in progress. So I'm really, really looking forward to Where's having... Where's it going to be playing? Is it in, in, in Toronto? Yeah, it'll be in Toronto, yeah. Um, uh, working on a piece for two pianos and six pianists. So <laughs> that's actually three pianists per piano. Right. It's going to be crowded. Uh, it'll, it'll be very crowded. Uh, it'll be a, it's a collective called Piano Six. Um, haven't, again, because you've caught me at the start of all, all these projects, I don't really know what they'll be yet. Right. Um, so for a project like that, for example, has me wondering how how do I deal with three pianos per piano? Um, what is, what can I do with three pianos per piano that you can't do with just a simple two piano piece? What's the metaphor there? You know, like yeah. I, I try to think about all of these things because uh, they've given me the instrumentation and again, sort of a rough duration. So that's a lot of fun for me to think about. It's, it's And it can be hard sometimes, especially if the instrumentation is not of a standard sort yeah. of, uh, a standard sort, right? So yeah, those are a few off the top of my head. And when they offered these to you, like, are you just thrilled and like, it's a challenge? And like, are you, do you look forward to each one of these in the same way as the other ones? Yeah, every project feels a bit different. There's always a mix of feelings because you know, on the one hand, you you want work and you want the challenge and there's an opportunity to write something new and then on the other hand um i sometimes feel like i've run out of things to do (laughs) and i don't know if i can write another piece and you know you start to (laughs) there's there's a bit of natural insecurity i think that comes with every every creative person and so um i kind of think that's good though like um and as long as the process is not too sort of crippling and it gives me joy eventually um, I kind of think it's worth it. But yeah, sometimes at the early stage, I try not to think too much about it. And then I, I kind of, when I know I have to work on this, then I'll go into it and I'll, I'll battle through the whole spectrum of emotions, <laughs> highs and lows. Uh, and then I'll get into the writing of the piece and it, uh, it usually is a fun ride from that point on. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I, I, I had the pleasure of working with you uh, with the Afiara String Quartet's uh, um, Spin Cycle with DJ Scratch Bastard, right. which was a, such a cool project. <laughs> and I got to know you a little bit there, but um, it's really nice to spend this time and get to know what you actually do. And uh, Forgive me for all the silly questions that I asked, but... Um, no, no, not I really silly at all. It. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for having me.